This edition of the Bio Report is brought to you by the California Technology Council, providing discounts on products and services essential to every startup. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. A large number of clinical trials underlying the approval of drugs never come into public view. This not only has legal and ethical ramifications, but implications for the healthcare system as a whole. We spoke to Jennifer Miller, founding president of Bioethics International and assistant professor at the NYU School of Medicine, about her recent study in BMJ Open, part of an effort to improve transparency through the creation of a good pharma scorecard. Miller discussed the study, the scorecard, and the state of transparency in the pharmaceutical industry. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Sure. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about the issue of transparency around clinical trials that support the approval of new drugs and your recent study in BMJ Open. Perhaps you can begin by explaining the data sources you looked at and how you selected which drugs were examined and what you were trying to determine. Sure. So there's a lot of um, concern and distrust around the pharmaceutical industry. And in general, you can think about the trust statistics as being represented by four numbers, 12, 71, and 17. So 12% is the percentage of Americans that trust the pharmaceutical companies are generally honest and ethical, and 70% think they put profits before people. And number one is what the industry used to be. It was the number one most admired industry in the world, and you could still find it ranking amongst the most admired sectors up until about 17 years ago. And so when you step back, you can't help but wonder why is there so much distrust around a sector that's dedicated towards developing products that can really help people, right, that can heal them um, or alleviate suffering. And so in looking at this, I thought, I wonder what I could do to both understand the ethical performance of companies and perhaps contribute to a more trustworthy sector. And so I developed the Good Pharma Scorecard, which um, evaluates the ethical performance of pharmaceutical companies and new medicines um, approved by the FDA. And so the first set of evaluations look just at what you mentioned, the transparency of pharmaceutical companies in disclosing clinical trial information for new medicines and vaccines. And so we started by looking at the drugs that the FDA approved in 2012. So in 2012, the FDA approved a good number of new drugs, and we decided to just begin by looking at the drugs that were sponsored by large pharmaceutical companies. So we looked at uh, drugs that were sponsored by the 20 largest pharmaceutical companies. So that's roughly any company with a market cap of over 18 or $19 billion. So for the first scorecard, we looked at 15 drugs 
sponsored by 10 companies involving around 318 applicable clinical trials conducted on almost 100,000 people around the world. Well, you actually looked at several elements of transparency. What do they include? Yeah, so there's a lot of discussion around around what transparency means. What does it mean to be to have a transparent clinical trial program? And so you can think about transparency as meaning at least two things. One, that you comply with all transparency laws. And if you think about the laws in the United States, you generally think about FIDA. FIDA was a law that was passed in 2007. And it has a lot of details, but in general, it requires disclosure of interventional or controlled non-phase one clinical trials. And then there's some caveats that um, specify exactly what that means and which trials are covered. But basically, if you want to be transparent, you can follow the law, that's FIDA, or you can hold yourself to a higher voluntary standard, which might mean that you disclose all clinical trial results. So transparency can mean minimal compliance with the law, or it can mean fuller transparency. And then the next question is, how do you disclose information, right? So regardless of whether it's the law or something higher, like all trials, there are three places where, or three standards that you generally want to follow. The first thing that you do is you register clinical trials. That means that you create a record at the outset before the trial begins. Um, about what you're about to do. And you put that in a clinical trial registry. The leading registry right now is called clinicaltrials.gov. It's run by the NIH. Then after the trial is completed, you want to report summary results. And you can put those summary results in that same trial registry, such as clinicaltrials.gov. Or you might want to publish the results in a medical journal like New England Journal of Medicine or JAMA. Well, uh, how, how big a problem is this? What, what did you find in reviewing the data? So remember that we looked at, we ranked pharmaceutical companies and new drugs according to two separate sets of standards. The first one is that the ethical standard that all trial results should be made publicly available so that they can contribute to generalizable knowledge. So for that index um, or ranking system, we found that a median of 57% of clinical trials conducted to gain regulatory approval of a drug are registered. And we found that about 20% of trials per drug have summary results reported in a clinical trial registry, and that 56% of trials per drug are published. So the real takeaway from this is that we'd like to know what percentage of trials per drug are publicly available, meaning that are either reported in a registry or published in the medical literature, and that's about 65%. So in other words, 35% are not published, but 65% are publicly available. Well, I, I want to talk about both the legal and, and ethical requirements. Did, did you find companies are not complying with the law? So, right. So I just talked to you about the ethics scores, or I told you the median scores. Then when you flip, switch to the legal compliance rankings, the numbers look very different. So I just want to tell you the difference in sample sizes. So when you think about ethics, we look at all trials conducted to gain regulatory approval of a drug. So in our analysis, that's a median of 17 trials per drug. Now, when you look at the law, the law covers a median of two to three trials conducted to gain regulatory approval of a drug. So the sample size is much smaller. So you can see that the law is much narrower in a sense. 
And there we found that an equal number of trials were an equal number of drugs were 100% compliant with the law as there were 0% compliant. So five drugs were 100% compliant with the law. That means they disclosed all clinical trial results for the trials that were legally required to be disclosed. But also five drugs were 0% compliant. That means they disclosed none of the trials. If companies are not complying with the law, it would suggest there's a failure of enforcement. Whose responsibility is that, and why is the law not being enforced? Yeah, so I think there's a couple factors contributing to the lack of FIDAW compliance. One is certainly a monitoring and enforcement gap. So uh, when Congress uh, passed the law, uh, they, they allowed the FDA to impose a $10,000 a day penalty for noncompliance with the law. So basically, it allowed for the FDA to send a letter to companies stating that there had been a compliance issue, and it gave it would allow the company 30 days to correct the error. Well, as you can see, the errors clearly weren't corrected, um, and so it's we're not sure if there are no letters going out. I would guess that there are letters going out, but there isn't a follow-up, right? So there's certainly a monitoring and in um, enforcement gap uh, on the part of the FDA. But the other part is the law is a little bit, um, the language isn't quite pre quite clear in FIDA. In my, and this is my opinion, I think FIDA has contributed to a, there's a spectrum of interpretations that have emerged around FIDA. So, for example, uh, I think some companies might, think that FIDA applies only to control trials, and other companies might think it applies to interventional trials. Um, that doesn't, and from my analysis, that doesn't really change compliance, but that's a, an example of perhaps unclear language. There also might be some ambiguity around the role of certificates of delay. Um, you know, if you file a certificate of delay, it allows you to delay the reporting of clinical trial results, and it doesn't... Are, there may be a cap to the amount of time that you can uh, delay reporting, and it seems that different companies think that that cap is it, it lasts uh, different amounts of time. So there's some unclear language that, that could benefit from um, greater clarity in the law. And the other challenging part is that there have been a lot of mergers and acquisitions and partnering that goes on within the industry. Uh, so, for example, Zyopidan, which is a glaucoma-related drug uh, was developed part by Stanton and part by Merck. And so then the question becomes, who was legally responsible to report results to fully comply with the law? Was it the original company who was developing it or the um, company who acquired or partnered or licensed um, some of the, the technology later on? So mergers and acquisitions, unclear language, um, and a lack of enforcement and monitoring all contribute to low compliance, in my opinion. Uh, about 10 years ago, there, there was big controversy over the antidepressant Paxil and that GSK was charged with hiding information about the studies. Instead, New York sued the company over this. Have companies learned from such experiences? So the Paxil case is a very interesting case. Um, when So the story is that uh, the then Attorney General of New York, Elliot Spitzer, sued GSK for reportedly failing to disclose clinical trial results, and those clinical trial results reportedly showed an increased risk of adolescents taking the drug, um, of, of uh, an increased risk of suicide of adolescents taking the drug. Now, 
supposedly GSK settled the case within two weeks of the of the lawsuit. And as part of that a settlement agreement, it's been said that they agreed to disclose all clinical trial results going forward. And um, some have said that the, the settlement agreement only lasted 10 years. What's so interesting is that settlement agreement was up in 2014. And rather than returning to some kind of old practice, GSK voluntarily raised its own standards and decided not just to disclose summary results, but to actually share patient-level data to qualified third parties upon request. And it's invested a lot of resources in disclosing patient-level data and setting an, arguably setting a new standard for the industry. And you see other companies following suit. J&J has partnered with Yale um, through the Yoda Project to also to similarly disclose patient-level data. And other companies are partnering with different groups as well to, to adopt this new best practice. Well, there, there's been a big push in recent years for greater transparency with regards to clinical trials, particularly through the campaign led by All Trials. What effect have these efforts had, and is Europe doing a better job than the United States? Yeah, there have been at least 15 governance issues around the trans- governance attempts around um, the transparency of clinical trials. Arguably, some go back to the 1980s, and then there was another big law passed in the U.S. in 1997 and then 2007, and there's been all this other intermediary efforts in, in between. Um, the medical journals have gotten involved. They wrote their own set of guidelines in 2005 and promulgated them through the ICMJE, which basically said if you want to ever publish in our member journals, um, you have to register all of your clinical trials first. So there, there have been a good number of governance governance efforts on the private, public, and, and semi-private um, levels, and they've all played a, a key role in increasing the transparency of companies. And I think you, if you look at the data, not in my data, but if you look at all the data um, all in together, you see an increasing, a trend of increasing transparency by companies. Now, some are clearly scoring much higher than others, and in, and in our index, you saw that GSK and J&J were 100% transparent. Um, in disclosing all clinical trial information for their drugs, but then you also see a lot of lot of room for improvement. So these fifteen or so governance efforts have to continue to to support the industry in, in its um, pathway towards transparency. Why not simply require that all studies be published? What what interests are protected by not publishing data? Well, as we already see that simply requiring things to happen isn't working, right? Like, as I said, in our score, our scorecard shows that five drugs are 0% compliant with existing baseline disclosure requirements. So the law helps, but it it's not hasn't been enough to date, right? And there was a law passed in 1997, and there was a law passed in 2007. So, you know, simply requiring full disclosure would be one way to go, Um but there are other efforts, as I mentioned, like our Good Pharma Scorecard that might also help. Well, what, what are the consequences from the perspective of the healthcare system and the quality of care of not having a fully transparent clinical data? I think there are two really important reasons to have full transparency. The one is an ethics reason. Generally, experimenting in humans so conducting clinical trials in people, is justified by its potential to contribute to generalizable knowledge. And so when you don't disclose the results of these experiments, it's very hard for them to contribute to generalizable knowledge. 
And remember that innovation is based on learning from the lessons of the scientists and researchers that went before you. So if the results aren't disclosed, it's very, there, there's arguably room, it arguably slows innovation. So the, the main reason is you want full disclosure to honor the commitment of the people who participated in the clinical trials. And if we're talking about FIDAL applicable trials, it's in the informed consent document stating that the results will be publicly disclosed in compliance with the law. But the second re- reason is not just an ethics reason, it's a public health reason. Prescription guidelines are based largely on a review of public evidence. So if the public evidence around a drug is partial or biased, then we run the risk of having inaccurate or incomplete clinical guidelines. And those guidelines are what the physicians use to prescribe the right drug for the right patient. So we want as much evidence in the public space as possible so that we can have that evidence-based medicine that we've been aiming for within the last you know, several years. You've talked about the good pharma scorecard. This study is meant to be the start of an ongoing index on transparency. Can, can you explain where you go from here? Yes. So the BMJ study debuted the results of our pilot. It was the first set of scoring. It was the first scorecard ranking the largest companies for the drugs approved in 2012. Now we plan to repeat this every year. So every new drug, biologic or vaccine that the FDA approves will get ranked for its transparency along with its manufacturer. So we'll be adding all sized companies, including the mid and the small, along with biologics and devices going forward. And then we'll begin to look at other ethical issues that are challenging the pharmaceutical industry and challenging its trustworthiness. And we really hope that the Good Pharma Scorecard does two things. One, it helps define what good practices can and should look like within the pharmaceutical industry. And secondly, it provides a signaling mechanism for seeing where there are best practices being implemented or where there are areas of reform, areas for reform. And then the Good Pharma Scorecard creates a pathway for incentivizing reform where it's needed. Jennifer Miller, founding president of Bioethics International and assistant professor at the NYU School of Medicine, lead author in the study on transparency in BMJ Open. Jennifer, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.